Welcome, I'm Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Full and edited versions of our podcasts are available on our website at www.cato.org. In the next six to nine months, a new farm bill will be written in the United States. After the suspension of the Doha development round of trade negotiations, many are left wondering what prospects are left for liberalizing the farm sector and reducing the significant costs imposed on American consumers, taxpayers, and trade partners as a result of government farm policies. Cato Trade Policy Analyst Sally James has some answers. Is agricultural reform possible without Doha? Well, it's certainly possible, although it will be more difficult. The main reason for the difficulty, and I think it was a big mistake on the part of the administration, was to market reform to domestic agricultural subsidies as a necessary evil, as something that had to be done in order to get better access to agricultural markets abroad. In other words, the administration told farmers essentially that in order to increase exports of American agricultural products, we need to offer to reduce the limit we will place on subsidies that most distort trade. But don't worry, we will only offer to do that if other countries lower tariffs. So having backed themselves into a corner like that and by promising to increase market access abroad for American farmers, the suspension of the Doha round is giving some farm lobby groups cause to argue for an extension of the current farm bill. In the absence of better access to export markets, they seem to be saying, why should we reduce our spending caps? Had the Doha round succeeded, it would have been politically easier to sell reform of domestic agricultural reforms. What are some proposals currently on the table? Well, agriculture is kind of complicated in the WTO. Areas of reform are divided into three areas, or sometimes called pillars. There is uh, domestic support that deals with payments given to farmers, which are further divided into types of payments according to how market and trade distorting they are. Another pillar is export competition that mainly deals with export subsidies, but food aid and state trading enterprises are also covered by this pillar. The final pillar is uh, market access, and that deals with cutting tariffs and expanding tariff quotas. Within those pillars, there are all sorts of sub-issues like special treatment for developing countries and so-called non-trade concerns like food security and rural development. Uh, The three main proposals put forward deal with the details of how to liberalise trade in agricultural products under each of these pillars. Obviously, the ideas put forward reflect the perceived political interests of each member. For example, the US proposal put more emphasis on reducing tariffs than subsidies. That's because the US generally has lower tariffs and higher subsidies, although the US subsidy proposal was not inconsequential. The European Union, on the other hand, asked for smaller tariff cuts to the most protected markets, which includes itself compared with, say, what the US was demanding. The G20, which is a group of major developing countries, including India and Brazil, called for tariff cuts somewhere between those asked for by the Europeans and the US. Then, of course, there are other issues about how many products each member can designate as sensitive and therefore excluded somewhat from tariff cuts. As I said, it's pretty complicated. Why does US foreign policy so overwhelmingly favour certain programme crops over non-programme crops? It's partly historical reasons. The US farm programs began in the 1930s when economic conditions for farmers uh, and everyone, for that matter, were, were relatively harsh. But the programs are still with us today. 
The big so-called program crops are cotton, wheat, corn, soybeans and rice. But there are other crops also receiving government payments. Those five big program crops I just mentioned account for about a fifth of cash receipts in agriculture, so about a fifth of production, if you like. But specialty crop farmers, those that grow fruit and vegetables, for example, receive not much at all from the subsidy program, and yet they are equal in value to those five program crops. That's not to say that we would advocate including more farmers in the subsidy program, quite the opposite in fact, but it is unfair. 60% of farmers get hardly any money from the government. Corn, on the other hand, and for example, got over 40% of subsidy payments between 2002 and 2005. That's just one crop. So we have a situation where agricultural markets and production have evolved, but the farm program has not. It really is designed for another era. And how much money are Americans paying for these programs? Well, uh, payments to farmers are projected to average over $20 billion per year from 2005 to 2007, with those five program crops I mentioned getting about 93% of those payments. However, those taxpayer outlays don't include the high cost to consumers of paying above market prices for food items such as milk, sugar, peanuts and rice and any items that include those crops. By keeping imports out and prices artificially high, a Cato study last year estimated that the annual tax, if you like, from these policies is estimated at $146 per American household per year. Because poorer households spend a higher percentage of their income on food, this de facto tax falls disproportionately on poorer households. Those poorer households are not incidentally farming households who on average earn about 10% more than the average American household. It just does not seem fair to hit the vast majority of Americans who are not farmers with higher food bills and taxes to support farmers who on average earn a higher income. This has been Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you for listening.